Amen, amen. All right, good morning, church. Welcome again to Redemption Flagstaff. My name is Vince. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's fantastic to be with you. I want to say just before I came up here, and it's interesting, Anthony prayed for it as well. Um, a buddy came up and said, hey, man, we want to hear from the Lord today. And I said, I'll do my best. And to say that, to say what we need to do in the midst of this, I think, is to have open hearts and have open ears and open eyes. It's even a huge part of the text, and I want to give it to us on the front end because what we're going to do today is as best we can, like every week, is open up the Bible and say, God, what do you have for us? And the reality is, is that we believe the power of the Holy Spirit is that he speaks to his people, right? That he communicates with his creation. And so I want to pray one more time, actually, that we would have hearts and ears and eyes, eyes to see what he's doing, ears to hear the word of God, and then hearts to interpret in a way that would move us out in the application. And so I'm actually going to pray for us one more time, if I might. And, and that might be too much prayer for some of you, but you know what I mean? You're sitting there, and you don't want to awkwardly walk to the back. So uh, if you do, you can wait till everyone's heads are bowed and eyes are closed, and no one would know. All right, let's pray. God, I want to pray one more time, God, that we would just be those people today. And, and regardless of where we're coming from, why we showed up today, uh, God, from, from the staff to the person who's visiting for the first time, God, I want to ask us, for all of us, Lord, would you open our, hear, our ears? God, if there's clogs and if there's things that we're hearing that aren't you, I pray that those will go. God, things that we've seen that are just distracting from the gospel and what it means to follow you, God, would those go? God, the things in our heart that would well up, that would express in things that are not of you, God, I pray that those would go and that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit today. We'd be able to hear from you, hear from the Lord. And that, God, in that, it would be undeniable and that we would be your followers this day and every day for the rest of our lives. That's our prayer. That's our ask. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, that being said, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, looking at verse 35. Don't feel weird about this, but we have extra Bibles here, and we'd love for you to follow along, so please get your hand in the air, and the ushers will bring one to you. If you don't own a Bible at all, it's our free gift to you, so please take this one, read it for today, put it back if you don't have one, if you do, or you know, get it. Just keep a Bible if you don't have one, and follow on. Turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Here's some background. Okay, we've... Uh, We've been talking about this idea that it's really important to actually follow Jesus, right? right? That, that you see throughout the Gospel of Mark, in the first half, there's this consistency to just tell us who Jesus is, but man, there's this huge movement now in the Gospel of Mark to actually say, hey, you're supposed to not just know who he is, but you're supposed to follow him. Like, your life is supposed to reflect his teachings, the things that he says are important. We're supposed to be engaged with his mission. And so today is just more of that. It's more of just pressing into this idea of, this is what it means to be my follower. Now, over the last couple weeks, we've addressed some specific idols within our culture, as Jesus did. We talked about marriage and divorce and relationships in general, selfishness that can come out of that. Anthony last week talked about wealth and pride as opposed to the humility of a child, if you remember this, right? Talks about all these different things, and here's what I began to do this week is I began to just see where I measured up, right? Like I began to do a triage of my own life and my own heart and say, okay, if these are the things, and we're preaching them from the pulpit, that God's saying, this is what should mark the life of a disciple, I then ask the question to myself, well, how am I doing? Right? Like if, if this is what he's calling me to, and I want to take that, I want to stake my claim, I'm a disciple of Jesus, how am I doing in lining up with those things? And so as I began to think through those things, uh, this illustration came to my mind, and it made me laugh, and maybe you'll remember it or not, but do you guys remember the presidential physical fitness challenge? You guys remember that growing up? Do they still do that to these days? People with kids in kind of elementary school, they still do that? 
So I remember growing up in Louisiana, and the Presidential Physical Fitness Challenge uh, was divided into three categories. You, if you achieved at a certain level, and we had four events, if you achieved at a certain level in the four events, you would get presidential status, which meant you would go on to be president, I think. And then if you, if you came in a bit under that, then it was national status, okay? So, uh, and then below that was participation, okay? Now, I don't know if you remember what events you had, but the four events we had were, were the mile. And I remember the mile time was like eight minutes, which I can't do today. And so, like, I, I was like, that was never going to happen. Uh, and then sit-ups, uh, you need to do, I think it was like 40 sit-ups. But remember you had people that were, like, resting on your feet as hard as you could, so it was really pretty simple. I crushed those, but I have great abs. And then um, <laughs> after that was, was either pull-ups or what they called the flexed arm hang. Do you guys remember that one where if you couldn't do a pull-up, which I couldn't, they would prop you up there like, like just, a, I don't know. And, and you would just be up there and trying to hold it with your chin above and your legs would be flailing like a leprechaun, you know, and you're just terrible, super embarrassing, okay? And I didn't make that either. And then the last one was the sit and reach, which <laughs> they make you sit down and they have the wooden board and you're supposed to try and reach as far as you can past a certain point in the board. I was of the minority that couldn't reach the board, right? Like it was just, the, the board is too far away. Like I was a negative 30. Like it was just like, <laughs> you're the least flexible human ever, okay? And so I get to the end and here's your participation award. And I said, thanks for the consistent reminder that I'm out of shape, right? Like, yeah, I'll put this on my wall. And I did. I put this on my wall. And I tell you what, here's what it was. It was everyday motivation to say, I don't want to have that award next year. Like, I, I don't want to be the guy again next year who before all of my friends is trying to rest his chin on the bar to give me extra strength. I, I want to try and get better. I want to try and be healthier. I want to try and be more fit. So it actually worked for me, right? So I see this thing and say, you know what? I didn't measure up to the category, right? I, 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 there was this example and I didn't meet it. And so my motivation could have been one of two things. Like my response could have been one of two things. I could have said, you know what? Forget it. I'll go this way. I'll do my own thing. Or I could have said, man, you know what? That, that seems to be a good thing. Like, it's probably better that I could reach the board than not reach the board. It's probably better that I could make a mile time than not make the mile time. And so I began to actually work towards these goals. And by the time fifth grade finished up, and that was the last year that we did that in Louisiana, I got Presidential Physical Fitness Award, right? Yeah, and I recently found it. And I'm gonna frame it, okay? And I'm gonna put it above my wife and I's bed and just say, and point to it every time she gets upset, and just say, hey, Presidential Physical Fitness Award, you should love me, right? <laughs> the reality is that if we don't take honestly and earnestly the commands to be a disciple, if we don't take that moment to say, okay, these are the things that I should be living up to, right? These are the things that Jesus is calling me to, and we know the move is to discipleship. Jesus is very clear. You are to be disciples of Jesus that pursue him every day with a goal in the power of the Holy Spirit to be sanctified in such a way that you look more like him tomorrow than you do today. And so there is this, I want to look more like Jesus. If we don't have that mentality, I feel maybe we're not disciples. 
Now, I'm gonna say this on the front end, and we're gonna really hit it hard at the back end, but I wanna give it to you right now. This is not legalism. In other words, me attaining the status of Presidential Physical Fitness Award recipient did not earn me anything in God's eyes. And you being a great Christian, sharing your faith more, reading the Bible more consistently, and showing up here on Sundays does not save you. But the call is for everyone in the room who says they want to be a disciple of Jesus. The goal is to look more like him. And so I want to ask us right now, as we look through what we've talked about, and as we look through what we'll talk about today, I want you to sincerely ask yourself, where do I measure up? Like, does this actually mark my life? And if it doesn't, what are the pitfalls? Okay, what are the things that are holding us back? And it says, last week, Anthony wrapped up in the last part of the passage with the third of Jesus' three passion predictions in the book of Mark. In other words, the, fir- the, f- the third of three times where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to a cross, and I'm going to have to die, but I'll be raised again. Okay? Three of those. He says in verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So here's what we're going to get. In the two passages that we'll look at today, we're going to see directly how do people who want to follow Jesus respond to the gospel message? How do two different people, and so we're going to get two different passages, which are oftentimes preached separately, but I think they're meant to be interpreted together. You're going to get in the first passage two guys, James and John, who are all stars already of the early Christian faith. These are the sons of thunder. These are two of the closest inner circle guys of Jesus and how they're going to respond to Jesus' gospel call. And then we're going to see how blind Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, responds to the very same question. And that question is, what do you want me to do for you? You're going to find that same question in both passages. Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? Now this all couched under the light of his third passion prediction. Hey, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. So let's pick it up. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Okay. So they're walking along, and then James and John look to Jesus. And again, this is right after he just talked about his impending death, right? Their first question is, hey, Jesus. And not even a question, it's a demand of Jesus. Hey, we want you to do whatever we want you to do for us. Right? So, so I, mean, I want you to think about this. If you're in a job or an occupation, if you went to your boss and said that to him tomorrow, hey boss, hey, I want you to do whatever I want you to do for me. How would that go? Students, if you're a teacher, you show up day one of class. Hey, teach, I want you to do for me whatever I want you to do for me. That didn't make sense. It's a lot of words. How does this go, right? This this probably doesn't, if Anthony, I mean, and and we just brought him on. Like if Anthony comes up to me and says, hey man, yeah, I want you to do whatever I ask of you. I would say you're fired, right? Uh, Actually, I wouldn't say that. I'm graceful, I'm an amazing boss. I would just say, repent, because that's not going to happen. But the reality is, is we're going to look at how Jesus responds to this. Because I think, and listen, Jesus has every right to, I think, take this and say, who do you think you are? 
Like G- Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, God in the flesh, the one who humbled and became a man, he, he has every right in this moment to say, who do you guys think you are? You're going you're gonna to demand of me, Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, you're going to demand of me whatever you want. Are you kidding me? That's not what he goes with. Instead, he asks the question, well, what do you want me to do for you? In this, always Jesus is always looking to serve, always looking towards the other. What do you, well, what do you want me to do for you? And their request of him is, hey, we know you're going to die, but you said you're also going to raise, which means that you're going to come back and you're probably going to rule the kingdom on earth here and you're going to take over the Roman Empire. And so can James and I, can John and I, can we sit at the left and right hand? Can we be your right and left hand man? Can we be your number twos? So that, you know, if this all goes down, we're, we've moved up the ladder. That's their request. Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. And Lord, you're missing something here. And I'll say this, I feel like oftentimes, unfortunately, this is the posture of my heart. And it's the posture of so many people's hearts when we want to love Jesus. It's Jesus, do what I want do what I want. And I think he's constantly having to say to us, you don't even know what you're asking for. You're missing it. You don't even get it. When we do this, that's the posture. Financially, God, make me rich. Take care of me. Give me this thing. Physically, God, heal me. Make me strong. Do all, right? it's, it's emotionally, God, give, give me you know, whatever I need. Let me have affection. Make me happy. On and on and on and all of these different things. It's God, do what I want. It's your God, you're powerful, you can, you're sovereign, you're good. So just give me what I want so that this can continue and I'll keep following you if you keep doing good things for me. And that's the type of contract we often work out with Jesus in our relationship and following of him. But it's not what the Bible gives us, okay? And so you do not understand what you're asking for. I think Jesus' response is perfect for us and I think it's a few different things. I think it's we're missing the details, we're assuming the wrong things, and we're making ourselves the center of the story instead of him. I remember in 2010, leading up to the Super Bowl, I remember consistently praying that the New Orleans Saints would win the Super Bowl, okay? I mean, I took, I took the scriptures of praying for the Saints very literally, okay? And so God, like, I remember literally saying, I'm sitting out, guys, and I would kind of do it in jest. Like, I didn't think he necessarily was going to answer, but then he did, and we won, Right? And I think that you hear this all the time in, in sporting. Like, if you guys have played sports growing up, it's always that pregame prayer, Lord, let us, let us win. Like, okay. They're praying the same thing, friend, okay? They're also hoping that they win. This leaves Jesus in somewhat of a conundrum for his people. <laughs> I, both of you can't win, okay? That's... And so I think when we pray, what happens is we don't, we don't see the bigger picture of what God might be doing. We have a lack in faith in who he is. And ultimately, it becomes about our decisions and our worldview, the details that we are privy to, that we make decisions off, and we forget there's a sovereign God who knows far more than we do, okay? These things have to mark the way that we are disciples. Let's continue. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you'll drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. So he's like, okay, you're missing it, right? You're not asking the right question. You're missing some details. So let's talk about those. I think the first one is that to follow means to follow all the way with everything. That to follow Jesus means to follow him, follow him all the way and with everything. That you don't get to keep anything. It's all his. You're fully bought in. And so that means that your physical presence is his. Your emotional presence is his. Your spiritual presence, his, his, it's, it's all, you hand over, you relinquish rights to God to say, you're Lord, you rule over me. Whatever you say, I'm going to do. So this means we lift up desires, we lift up wants, and here's the thing, I'll say this, just because you, there's often going to be times, very frequently, where your desires will be his desires, and his desires will be yours, and there's no conflict what's being addressed in the following of Jesus, when Jesus says no to you, if God says no, how do you respond? There's something you want, and you want it so bad. I was like, that's, I want that. And and either the Bible has already said no, or the Holy Spirit inside you convicts you and says no. If you continue to pursue it, you gotta ask yourself the question, where am I with Jesus? What marks a disciple is to say, okay, if, if you're gonna say no, I'll, I'll, I won't do it. You see, these guys miss that detail because they thought they were the author of the story where Jesus himself, the son of God, stands here and says, I can't even make the decision if you'll sit at my left or my left or right hand. Do you know who's gonna have to do that? The father in heaven whose will we all sit under. It's not your story that you're authoring. It's his story. He's the author of it. You're not in control. And so give it over because he is your Lord. So the question again, I mean, okay, does this make sense for us? Are these details still too confusing for us as Christians? Do we still not buy into them? Do we still want to hold on to our own thing? I think another one is to follow means to follow humbly. Like a disciple doesn't just follow, but he follows humbly. It's not about them. See, what James and John are trying to do here is say, hey, make much of us. Raise us up. Let us be with you in glory. You're going to be seeing your position. Get us in that next position. And so instead of approaching their following of him, humbly saying, man, we want to serve, it's, no, okay, exalt us. Exalt us. And, and Yeah. And even, even when asked, are you going to be able to do these things? Are you going to be able to drink the cup? And let's just clarify that. Drink the cup, we'll see, especially uh, right in the Garden of Gethsemane in a few more chapters where Jesus will drink the cup of God's wrath. In other words, poured out on him will be the wrath of God that was deserved on man. Instead, he will take that upon his shoulders. The baptism with which Christ is baptized with is, is, is entered into a life of pain, suffering that ultimately leads to death. And so Jesus is asking him, are you ready for that life? Are you ready for a life that you say, gosh, you know what? I'm going to give it all away. It won't be about me. It'll be about him. And I'm just going to say, I'm in. And I'll go all the way to the cross. Okay. That's what we're being called to. That's what's being asked of us. Okay. And the last one, I already said it, but the whole author of the story. And one of the things 
that I think is, I see very prevalent, and I just want to give you just a very clear illustration for this, that I see very prevalent in the whole, if God says no, we still try and pursue a thing. And it's just happened a lot this week, so maybe that's why it's on my mind and heart. But it's the consistent, it's the consistent dating of non-Christians and Christians. And, and, and let me just be very clear with this. This isn't like a preference of mine. This is a preference of Jesus. If you love Jesus and you're dating someone who doesn't love Jesus, it doesn't work. God does not want that. It's just the way it is. But constantly I'm approached by people that say, hey, you know what? He's not a Christian, but he's a really great guy. And I say, okay, that doesn't matter. I, I love that he's a great guy, and I love that he treats you well, and I, I will affirm all of that. But the Bible is pretty obvious and clear on this issue. Don't do it. And yet over and over and over, we get this counsel. We look at the scriptures. I say, this is what I think God's saying. And then over and over and over, you do it anyway. I saw it in three different couples this week. All three of them, one of the two parties, came and asked me for counsel. And I said, no, let's look at the Bible. What does it say? And they said, okay, I agree with you. But I'm going to go do my own thing anyway. I'm not judging their salvation, but I am judging their discipleship. And I'm judging my own because not just that I'm married now, so I don't have to worry about that one, but I've got other things that Jesus has said no to that I try and push through anyway. And I have to judge my discipleship. I have to really count the cost. I have to triage my life and say, man, where do I line up in this? Do I really love you? And if we want to see the things that we desire to see in this world, the redemption of this world, people coming to know the love of Jesus, then there has to be a consistent marker of the church that we look inward. We're really good at looking outward, but how often do we just sit down and say, man, where am I at in my discipleship? And so I want us to be that type of people because in that type of people, we see a lot of what we'll see in the second story. Let's keep going. Verse 41, still with James and John, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for the ransom of many. Such is the power of sin that it doesn't just affect the people that commit it, it affects the whole community. And so all of a sudden what you got is you have the entire band of the 12 disciples now infighting because of what these two guys have just done. And the reality is that's probably what's going on in their heart is not, hey, how dare you count your discipleship? You know, do you love Jesus? You shouldn't ask that question. They're probably thinking, man, is that going to work? Hey, are they, are they actually going to get those positions? Because I want that position. Is this actually going to happen for them? Because if it is, then I have a problem with that because I deserve it more than they do. And you see sin begin to kind of trickle through the entire community. And there begins to be this bickering amongst the 12 that are supposed to be the 12 closest to Jesus that are going to carry this message to the world. Such is the power of sin to sneak in and just terrify and mess up a mission. Okay. And so this is, this is kind of the context of where we're at. So the last one in discipleship is that to follow is to serve. Okay. That, a, that a disciple serves. A disciple 
sees others more important than themselves, the disciple's going to come in and say, it's not about you, it's about me. Well, that's not right. Flip that. It's not, a, it's about, not about me, it's about you. <laughs> that's what a disciple says. That's how a disciple tries to live his life. In the prime example, Jesus even says it himself. This is one of the few moments where Jesus, he kind of gives himself a nod. He said, the son of man's come to serve. He's just spoken highly about service. And he's like, listen, that's why I'm here. Like, like I came to serve the world, not be served by it. An amazing, incredible moment of humility where the son the God of the universe in, 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 in incarnate form and in, in, in human form comes down and says, I'm here to serve you guys. And he says, such is the way that a disciple should live his life. Okay. So the question of, I want you to ask it before we move on to the next story of, you know, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? I mean, the way you answer that question will speak leagues, will speak bounds about your relationship with God. And we'll talk more about that as we look at this second story. So second story is about blind Bartimaeus, okay? And maybe you've heard that if you grew up in church, blind Bartimaeus. I was talking to some people before, but as I thought about this, <laughs> it was just really interesting to me, and this is a total aside, has nothing to do really with the text, other than I just wonder when we get to heaven, like how many people will approach Bartimaeus and call him blind Bartimaeus? And he'll be like, I can see now, Thanks. And I began to just run through all these Old Testament characters and just like the conversations they're going to have to have in heaven that they'll probably be tired of. Like Jonah, like, hey man, what was it like to be in a fish? He's like, I got out, like enough. Like, I, I'm here now. Can we move on? Poor blind Bartimaeus is the story that we look at. But the truth is, is that oftentimes this story becomes about Jesus' healing, which is, which is phenomenal. But the faith that Bartimaeus uh, examples for us in contrast to the faith that we're given by the disciples is the key part of this text. And so let's look at verse 46. It says, they came to Jericho and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So... Bartimaeus hears Jesus coming along. There's probably commotion. There was a lot of people. Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming along, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, already, immediately, in the first interaction that we get to have with Bartimaeus, we see him already, I think this is intentional by Mark in the gospel, is to contrast with everything we just said the disciples didn't do right. The disciples try to exalt themselves, think they're great. He's saying, no, have mercy on me. I don't deserve this. James and John, listen, we've worked for you. We've, we should be your left and right hand man. We're the best guys for the job. We deserve it. Have mercy on me, Jesus. You're God, I'm not. Please give mercy to me. I don't deserve it. So what do we, what do we see? We see these, these disciples who we think are heroes and polished. Then we get this blind beggar who has no business talking to Jesus and he's the guy who begins to exhibit the faith that we should all strive for. Have mercy on me. And then he declares, Jesus, son of David. What he's doing is he's acknowledging the story is bigger than himself. He's going Old Testament. He's going Hebrew Bible here. He's saying, son of David. This, this name, this is a long story culminating in Christ that Jesus would be the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament prophesies about, about the Savior. 
And probably this man getting it when he proclaims, Jesus, son of David, Messiah, I know who you are. I know why you're here. I know what you're doing. He has the facts. He has the details. And he cries for mercy to Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 48. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. Two things. Such One, such a highlight of our culture, I think, in this little text. This little path. This, such a highlight of our culture that and this guy cries out, Jesus, help, have mercy. And his response from the crowd is rebuke. The response of the people is, man, be quiet. The response of the people is, listen, you don't deserve to talk to him. The response of the people is, shh, stay over there. Consistently, this is a cultural norm and reality. Where constantly there's this, man, you know what? You want to be a Jesus person? You want to do that? Just do it kind of over in the corner. Do it quietly. Do it to yourself. Don't let that become part of the public sphere. And I just don't think that's, that's what we're called to. I don't think that's what we're called to. And then such a highlight of the gospel, such a highlight of culture, but such a highlight of the gospel because in the midst of all of this pressure for this guy to just back up and say, okay, you know what? I don't deserve it. I'm just gonna let Jesus do his own thing. And and all this pressure to just be quiet, Jesus then comes out and says, call him. And what do they do? We don't know who, but people go over to this guy and they say, take heart. Jesus is calling you. Listen, listen, Bartimaeus, take heart, okay? Jesus, the guy that you're longing for, the guy that you know to be the savior of the world, the guy that you know that is the son of God, the guy that you know that is God in the flesh, he's calling you. And I just imagine him sitting there thinking through all of his life, and we don't know how long he was blind for. We do know he says, restore my sight, which probably meant that at one point he had it and then lost it. We don't know how long of a season this was for him, how long he was pushed to the margins, but you imagine this guy in that moment sitting there longing for God to help and then hearing those words, Jesus Christ is calling you. Come. And I think, honestly, there's, there, there's just always, and, and there's people here today, there'll be people here next week, there's story, there, was, there was stuff going on for me last week and the months, pro, I mean, just where that type of saying needs to be echoed over and over and over. Vince, take heart and come. Jesus is calling you. This is a profound thing. Because in this world, and we're having a lot of conversations, my wife and I, and we're just talking about how Sometimes we, we get lonely and we just feel we're kind of like off doing this thing ourselves in some ways and we're just trying to negotiate that together and, and just forgetting about the reality of a God who has desire to draw us close. To say, listen, take heart. Okay, whatever it is you're walking through, I call my disciples to myself. I bring in those that are hurting I take those that are in pain and bring them in. We deal with this together. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know, man. I, I know that oftentimes we'll show up and there's a lot of stuff that we try and hide when we come to church because there's a certain type of persona that we should have when we're church to just be happy all the time and that's just not possible. And so I'm saying, well, listen, wherever you're at today, I want you to hear, listen, take heart. 
Take heart, Jesus is calling you to himself. Okay. Again, we hear the Lord today, hear his voice saying, come. Go to him. Listen, and everything, and honestly, if today is fantastic, this is the best day you've had in years, you still go to Jesus because he's the one giving you that best day anyway. Okay. Take heart and let's go to Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 50, wrapping up. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? There's that question. Okay, that's what links these passages. What do you want me to do for you? Let's look at his response. The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. So, so Bartholomew, he gets this audience with Jesus. Jesus asks that question, what do you want me to do for you? And he's like, let me recover my sight. Now, here's the thing. Jesus responds with, good, it's your faith that has given you your sight back. Now, his request is not all that different from the requests of the disciples. On the external, he's requesting for a physical reality to be different. He's asking, hey man, I can't see, I'd like to see again. He's asking for a physical healing. He literally is saying, Jesus, this is what I need from you. The disciples were doing the same thing. They felt they had this need in their heart that they wanted to be in a position of status, that they wanted this power. They wanted to follow him this way. And so they asked, would you give us this? So in the external, they're both asking things of Jesus. So the problem is not asking things of Jesus. We can do that. The problem is what's happening in here? What's going on in your heart? Because it's not that way he asked. It's not the thing he asked that Jesus decided to grant. It's that it was his faith that Jesus said, it's, yeah, I'll do that because your heart is with me. Your, your heart is, is you, you have this desire, this, this discipleship type of desire to say, I want to follow you in all of this. I'm willing to go all the way. And it says that he will. It says he will follow him. This follow is a kind of present progressive. He is going to continue to follow and listen and act out on all the commands of Jesus, fulfilling Mark 8, where God the Father comes down and says, this is my son, Jesus, listen to him. So this man's intentionally placed this story, because here's the thing, we know in the Bible that we're told that there are numerous, numerous stories that could be told about Jesus, that there are not enough volumes in the world to speak about everything he's accomplished. So what we know is, is that Jesus and the power, that the Holy Spirit, when he was telling us, who, what are we going to give them? Like, what, what stories do we want them to know about? They gave us this one moment that is seemingly insignificant of one blind beggar coming to Jesus. I think to intentionally contrast him with who we thought were supposed to be the best. These disciples are going off, they're doing tons of great stuff, but Jesus is going to exalt the guy who's been sitting, lame, broken, and ostracized probably for years. To constantly hammer at our hearts, it's about what's inside. If you don't start there, the rest of it's not going to matter. What's going on in here? And when we ask ourselves the question, what type of disciple am I? How do I measure up? We're not measuring the external for external sake. We're measuring the external to reveal what's going on in here. What's going on inside all of this? Do I love him? Am I his disciple? Would I follow him all the way? 
If he's calling me to death, would I go? If he's calling me to say no to this relationship, will I say okay? If he's saying yes to some new, new venture or whatever, will you step out in faith that he'll provide for you? What are those things? It's the mark of a disciple. And he's going to keep hammering this. And you know why he's going to keep hammering this is because Jesus is dealing with the 12 guys that when he goes are going to be responsible for bringing the gospel to the world. Like he's, I mean, he's not just doing this because these guys are around him. He's preparing a team of disciples that will take the great commission to the whole world to tell people the gospel story we preach about 2,000 years later. So the stakes were huge. He's like, guys, you gotta get this. We're gonna keep talking about it. We're gonna keep saying, this is what it means to follow. This is what it means to follow. Learn this, live like this, become more like me because you're gonna have to take this to the world. And honestly, the mission of God has not changed. That the 150, 60 of us sitting in the room right now, if you love Jesus, and I don't wanna presume, I know all your stories, some of you just might be visiting, you're not a Christian. Great, thank you so much for being here. But the mission of the church is to go. The mission of the church is to live like Jesus did, to fulfill the things he's called us to do in the Great Commission, to go and make disciples in the entire world. And so this isn't just, this isn't me up here saying, be a better Christian, because I want you to be a better Christian. It doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't even mean anything to Jesus. He's saying, listen, this is important. We, we need to become a people. I, listen, I need to become way better at this, at consistently looking inside my own heart and being honest with my shortcomings and my failures and my victories and celebrate those as well. We have to be able to wrestle with this. If we want to become the disciples that Jesus has called us to. Now, here's the best part of this whole thing. Here's the best part of this whole thing. What we get to see in blind Bartimaeus is a switch in the type of question he asks. See, so no longer, like we have in the disciples, does he ask the question or really demand of God, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. Okay? Instead, he begins to dwell on what have you already done? See, that, that sudden shift needs to be the shift for the church today. Instead of saying, okay, God, what will you do for me? To God, what have you already done? If we do not live gospel motivated lives, if you're living for what God is going to give you and not off of what he's done, then we're in trouble because you're always gonna be expecting him to prove himself again to you. And he need not do that. He proved everything on the cross 2,000 years ago, giving up his life, laying it down when you deserve to be the one up there. I deserve to be the one up there. Need not prove it ever again. We cannot live where we always say, God, what are you gonna give me? We have to live lives in motivated by the gospel and say, what have you already done? And what he's done for you is everything. What he's done for me is everything. He lived the life that we could never live, perfect, sinless, spotless, without blemish. And he took a punishment that each of us deserved to have. And then he died, and he rose again on the third day. We couldn't raise ourselves. We're not good enough. He did that because we couldn't. What has he done for you? And then lastly, the last question then becomes, and I think Bartimaeus is probably asking himself every day for the rest of his life as he followed Jesus, was no longer 
What will God do for me? What will Jesus do for me? It's, what can I do for Jesus? What can I do for Jesus? See, see the change in question, but it all starts with what's in here. It all starts, I think, if this is, let me just give us the entire arc to this thing. God's done a work, okay? God's done something in your life. And this is, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian today, God has done work in your life. And then we've taken it, right? And we've either accepted that's him and they've reflected on it, we've done it right, but more than likely what we've done is said, well, you know what, okay, that was, that was pretty good, but I still want to do my own thing. I'm going to walk in my own way. I'm going to be my own kind of Lord and disciple of myself. And so then we've rejected him, whether in little things, big things, whatever. And we have to then in that place ask real questions about ourselves to say, where am I at? And where am I with Jesus? The beauty of the gospel is that even when we are honest with ourselves in this triage moment and we find out we're merely just participants in the challenge, Jesus exalts us as if we're presidents. You see what I'm saying? That, that honestly, all of us in the grand scheme of things, listen, you're just a participant, and so am I. You're not an all-star Christian. You're not a presidential award recipient Christian. You're not a national award-winning Christian. You're, you're not. You're a participant just like me, and that should be great for us because the participation is all that is necessary because he's done everything to already achieve the status you could never reach. And so in our participation, you are saved, you are given grace upon grace, and you walk free from the challenges and the brokenness of this world that tell you you need to earn it. Participation is all that's necessary. Give, I'm in. I love you, Jesus. You're mine, and I'm yours. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. That's the gospel. And it's out of that reality, what he has done, set you free, changed your life, that then we ask the question, well, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? So if, listen, here's the thing. As you leave today, I think some of you need to sit and really process the question of, what have you done for me? And, and listen, if you're not a Christian, I'd love for you to really mind that question out and really sift through. And I'll tell you, he has probably done abundantly more you could ever imagine. But some of us, I think, need to sit in that question, what have you done for me? And just sit there. Don't even move on to the next one yet. And just sit and let that just wash over you all day, this whole week, meditating. God, what have you done for me? What have you done for me? And just really celebrate that. And I think some of us, maybe we already are there, right? And, and you're never fully there, but you, you, you've, you've been processing the gospel a bit more. You really understand what he's done for you. I think the question becomes the same thing that now Bartimaeus is probably asking himself, what can I do for you? And so when we move into our reflection time, those two questions. What have you done for me? And what can I do for you? Let's pray.